Joseph among um, not just our students, but our adults. It was just a, um, it was a blessed trip. I mean, listen, you think about getting locked up with somebody 24 hours a day for a week after a 17-hour drive, um, that's enough to test anybody's sanctification. But uh, I agree with Joseph. One of the sweetest things about it was being able to spend extended time with people that you don't normally. I mean, think about this for a second, okay? Just a 17-hour van trip, uh, if, if the only time we spend together as believers is on Sunday morning worship, you know how many hours that gives us over the course of a year? 52 hours. So, so just on the trip up and trip back, we, we have almost equaled the amount of time that we spend with each other in, in the course of an entire year. And then you add 24 hours a day, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, man, listen, we get about three years worth of fellowship in a week. And um, what's great is I don't think anybody that went on the trip goes, yeah, I'm full now. I don't need any more fellowship. No, no, no. What Joseph had to say was right. Uh, I think he came back uh, loving his church and uh, spending some time with adults maybe that you don't normally spend time with. So it was great. Thank you for your faithful giving because uh, we want to be a church on mission. And uh, there is a degree to which we would not be able to do that if you were not faithful in your giving. Um, but we went to Boston for a week for $110 a person. Um, you can't beat that. And so that's, that's, that's an awesome thing, <clears throat> an awesome thing. All right, here's my question, because um, I'm a city boy. I was talking to someone this morning about growing up in Fort Lauderdale. So I actually don't know the answer to this question, and I need you to be honest. You're in church. How many of you grew up on a farm? One, two, three, four, five. All right, you know what that means? Everybody else didn't. So we're, we're about to jump into a conversation where Jesus uses another analogy, and it's a farming analogy. He calls himself the good shepherd. And uh, apart from, the, for the rest of you, apart from petting zoos, you have no idea what it means to hang around a bunch of goats and sheep. And so, you know, they're cute, they're little, Mary wants one, you know, she wants to put it in the backyard. Um, most of us have no understanding of kind of what that kind of domesticated animal stuff is like. And so you don't have to be a farmer, you don't have to be a sheep herder, you don't have to be a goat keeper to appreciate uh, the analogy that Jesus uses, he is the good shepherd. It's a precious truth that he, he cares for us. And so uh, admittedly, as we go through this series talking about Jesus' I am statements, last week we started with I am the door. This is a change of metaphor. He's moving from I am the door to I am the good shepherd. And so a couple things, just to start off kind of getting things moving in the right direction. It's not just a change of metaphor, it's a change of meaning. Last week when we talked about Jesus saying, I am the door, you know, we, we asked the question, why do, you have, why do you have a bedroom door? Probably because you have kids and you want to lock them out just briefly, you know, and keep them out of your business for just a little bit. Why do you have, why do you have a door to the front of your house? Because ultimately, it's a metaphor communicating safety and security. You want whatever is bad outside, whether it's the weather or whether it's no, nosy neighbors or whether it's um, burglars, you want them outside and you want to protect whatever is inside. That's behind the metaphor of Jesus being the door. When he changes the metaphor to I'm the good shepherd, he's no longer talking about the idea of safety and security, though that's a little part of what Jesus' shepherding is about. Really, when we talk about the metaphor of Jesus being the shepherd, we're talking about care. Not safety and security. We're talking about care. Friends, let me just ask a question. Who takes care of you better than the Lord? You know? I mean, Mike, listen, you just went through surgery. 
You know, you had some pretty good caregivers. But if the Lord was not taking care of you, it doesn't matter how good everybody else was doing, you'd have been in big trouble. And listen, God gives us wonderful gifts through our friends. Anybody been cared for by a friend? It's a great thing. I mean, God gives us practical ways that he fleshes out his care for us through the people he puts around us. I mean, think about how terrible life would be if you didn't have anybody. It'd be bad. Um, but the Lord takes care of us far better than anyone else can take care of us. So we're, we're changing the metaphor. Last week, security. Today, we're talking about care. <clears throat> and as we begin in John chapter 10, we pick up just a couple of verses from where we ended last week. Jesus, I think this is a Southern phrase. I'll throw y'all in it to make it a little more Southern. But Jesus starts with his very first introduction to this metaphor by giving us, here's the Southern phrase, a humdinger. I think that's, I think that's a Southern phrase. He, he, he gives us a big statement. We're not even into the sermon. And the very first thing that Jesus has to say in verse 11 is, wow, deep. Like He, he, doesn't, he doesn't build up. He, he jumps to the crescendo uh, very first. Uh, look at verse 11 with me of John chapter 10. He says this, I am the good shepherd. Now, that's a great statement. Jesus is talking about who he is. And he has chosen this metaphor, uh, one of only seven, to really be descriptive of who he is. He is describing his role and he is describing his character. I am the good shepherd. And then he does something really interesting. He contrasts in the rest of this passage how... His shepherding is ultimately vastly different than everyone else's. He draws a contrast and says, hey, hey, not only am I going to state the fact that I am the good shepherd, I'm going to demonstrate practical ways in which my shepherding is superior to everyone else's. And he, he, he goes on in verse 11. This is where it gets deep. Beyond making the statement, he makes this uh, superlative, incredible statement to finish out verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And one of the things we have to acknowledge here is kind of an overarching principle here uh, before we look at our points. Uh, and our points are not just, they're just helpful ways, a, a, a kind of a structure to kind of hang some meaning that's found in this passage. But an overarching principle here that Jesus is trying to communicate by saying that he is the good shepherd We'll see it spelled out in great detail afterwards. The, the point that he's trying to make is that there's a world of difference between the kind of care that is ex expressed by someone who is an owner as opposed to someone who is merely an employee. Okay? Anybody ever been a landlord? Who cares for your property more, the landlord or the renter? Now, typically, you have to come in and you have to fix everything that the renter did because they don't really care because they're there for however long their contract is. So the holes in the wall and the fixtures that they've taken and all that kind of stuff, guess what? That's not their problem. That is your problem because you are the owner. <clears throat> Anybody work with man management at all, manage employees? I know there's a few of you that do this. Um, who cares more, you or your employees? Uh, listen, I, you don't even have to ask a question. It's almost laughable. Now, here's the point. <clears throat> this does not mean that employees cannot care. Thank God, if you manage people, you, you might have a couple people that care. We have a word for those kind of people. They're called people who get promoted and who get raises, right? So there, there are, thank God, 
employees, people that work under your supervision who care, but does anybody quite care like you? And let me just suggest, if they do, then maybe you're out of a job. Maybe you're not necessary anymore. Maybe you need to move on to something different because now you've raised up somebody who cares the way that you do. Regardless, even if you have an employee that cares, if your name is on the sign, if you're the owner of the business, if you're the CEO, whatever, nobody cares like you do. You have skin in the game. I mean, this hurts you personally if the bottom line's not met, whatever the bottom line is, excellence, reputation, income. You are the one personally who your employee's going to get paid because they put the hours in. Some employees just don't give a rip. It's not their reputation on the line. And so there are, gratefully, things about employees that are good. The point that Jesus is making as the owner of the sheep that we'll see him spell out, nobody quite cares like he does. And I think it's helpful with this owner-employee analogy. We know that. If you are the owner, I mean, let's just talk about being a parent. That's a form of ownership. I know my kids would say it's a form of indentured servanthood. Um, does anybody care about your kids as much as you do? No. No, listen, here's what's great. you got a whole nursery full of staff people that love kids, and they love your kids. This is not to minimize other people's love for your kids, but does anybody love them like you do? No. No. We understand that. We understand that. Now, here's the thing that I think is important for us to establish when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Um, anybody use the word good in a sentence this week? Yes, you use it all the time. You know, hey, man, how was your week? It was good, which basically means it was okay. That's not what good means. Good means good, not neutral. It, rather, listen, if you're one of those kind of people, when someone asks you, you know, how's your week, you always say it's good, you would probably be lying a lot less to say, it was fair to Midland. It was relatively neutral. Uh, you know, it, it was a kind of a sum of zero, you know, not too positive, not too negative. Because I know what you mean. So the other day, uh, Caleb and Colin were playing, playing football in the yard. And um, Caleb's a little bit bigger than Colin is. And so Colin fell and went boom and uh, unintentional. And so he stands up and brushes himself off and he goes, I'm good. Well, no, you got, you're bleeding and, um, and you didn't catch the ball. If you were good, you wouldn't have fallen. You know, terrible illustration, but we use the word all the time. And so here's the deal. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, this is not Jesus saying, you know, I'm the fair to adequate shepherd. I'm the okay shepherd. Isn't that how we use the word a lot when we say good? Yeah, I'm okay. All right. I'm slightly above average. No, 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 no. See, here's, here's the thing. When, when it, it rolls off our language in the English language, and I would really encourage you, this is where a good study Bible uh, is, is beneficial. The word for good, for good shepherd, is not the normal word that would be used for good. Uh, that's the word agathos. The word here is kalos. And kalos means not good. It means beautiful, excellent, ideal, or perfect. All right, church, so here's a quick, quick, here's a quick quiz for you. What kind of shepherd do you serve? An okay or adequate shepherd? Or an ideal, perfect, beautiful shepherd? I know about you. I choose hamburger beef. I serve a perfect shepherd. I serve an ideal shepherd. I serve a beautiful shepherd. So when you hear he is the good shepherd, this is not the adequate and okay shepherd. This is the perfect shepherd. 
This is the superlative shepherd. This is the best shepherd you can want. So Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And uh, I don't know, I don't know the first thing about shepherding sheep. I think they stink. I mean, I think that's, that's part of it, you know. Um, th- their fur gets thick, so like if you're OCD, there's all kinds of stuff stuck in their fur, you know, drive you crazy, you know. So Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and then he begins to illustrate it. And I would imagine that there's probably a thousand things that he could talk about to flesh out his job description. You know, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> we have a little bit of a job description. Uh, David in Psalm 23 gives us a bit of a job description of a shepherd. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, so I shall not want. Well, why don't you want? Because he's a good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And then he goes on. He says, here's what a shepherd does. He takes me out. He gives me green grass. He gives me quiet waters. He makes sure that I've got the softest grass in the whole valley to sleep in. So I've got food. I've got water. I've got rest. He's promised to guide me. He's promised to protect me. He's, He's promised to do all these things. So Jesus could say, not innumerable, but he could say many things about his form of shepherding. You, you, you know what he does? He doesn't talk about any one of those things. He jumps into the deep end of the pool. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd doesn't feed, doesn't care, doesn't nurture, doesn't bind up. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let me tell you, you ready to apply for that job description? Looking for a few good men, shepherd these sheep, and it's going to require your death. Jesus says that's what makes his shepherding distinct. Jesus demonstrates the superiority of his shepherding by his willingness to die for the sheep. Now, don't don't get this wrong. Sheep are important, but they're common in everyday animals. So like, I don't know if we have any hamster farmers here, any guinea pig gatherers, Um, and, and that's intentionally being kind of rude, it's just an animal. Like, you're going to lay your life down for a hamster or a gerbil? And yet the shepherd who is, let's just admit this, vastly superior to the things that he is caring for, demonstrates such incredible humility that not only is he willing to care for them, he's willing to care for them to the extent of laying his life down. When he says lay your life down, that's not take a nap, that's die. That's a metaphor for death. <clears throat> the shepherd is willing to uh, lay down his life for the sheep. Now, an important thing here, and I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to hit you with a lot of Greek. This is not kind of the, the point of it, but it is important. Again, this is where a good study Bible comes in. The word for life, when he says he lays down his life for the sheep, there are Greek words that you know that you don't even know that you know. He doesn't use those words to talk about life. Uh, here's two options that he could use for life. He could say that I lay down my life, Greek word, bios, from which we get the word biology. It is the study of kind of the human anatomy, what makes the blood flow through our veins, what makes the neurons, uh, blood through our veins, neurons fire in our brains, uh, lungs to respirate, pores to open so that you sweat when you're hot and you don't overheat. That's biology. That's bios. That's physical life. Another word uh, used for life, zoe, which is where we get the word zoology. That's another kind of study of life, of animal life. So there, there are ways that animal life and human life are similar because we both are animated things or creatures, but biology is the realm of human existence. Zoology is the, the realm of animal-like existence that can sometimes be used of human beings. 
He didn't use either one of those words. He uses instead a unique word that is not a word that you're not familiar with. He uses the word psyche, which is the word that we get soul from. Psychology. Um, you know what psychology is? Soul care. Care for your soul. Now, let me just say this. I think there are right and appropriate times to go, a psych- to go to a psychologist, but you know who needs to be the first psychologist that you go to? The Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one who's going to care for your soul. Listen, they care for your soul because you're paying big bucks. Jesus cares for your soul because he's already paid for your soul. He cares for you. And so here's what happens. Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's not saying he's merely willing to lay down his biology, whatever it is that animates us and keeps us alive. No, no, no. Jesus says he's willing to lay down his soul. We have a phrase for this. Jesus is all in. As if we could separate your bios life from your psyche life. He says, listen, I'm willing. I'm willing to sacrifice my biology. But more than that, I'm willing to offer up my soul to God to protect the sheep that God has given me. Whatever it is that makes him the total of who he is, his, his, his soul, his heart, his entire being, Jesus lays it all on the line and he makes his self-sacrifice the focal point in this entire story about being a good shepherd because he repeats, I'm laying down my life for the sheep. I'm laying down my life for the sheep. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to lay down everything that I am. And it sounds strange because it sounds like the death of the shepherd would mean death for the sheep and it's the complete opposite for us. It's the death of the shepherd that gives his sheep their life. In verses 12 and 13, we see this contrast begin to be enacted. Uh, he says this, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, the one who does not own the sheep, well, he sees the wolf coming, and he scatters, he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them, and he scatters the flock. This hired hand flees because he's a hired hand, and he cares nothing for the sheep. We've already established this. Employees can care. But when it's your flock, you care different. You care deeper. And the point that he's making here is not so much a a difference in action. Even a hired hand is going to do some things that a good shepherd does. I mean, a hired hand is going to make sure that they're fed. hired hand is going to make sure that they're not lost. hired hand is going to make sure that they get guided to the right places. But what makes the, the, the greatest distinction between the hired hand and the actual owner, shepherd, head shepherd, is that when it comes to danger... His flock, the shepherd stands in the face of danger and the hired hand takes off and runs for the hills. That's the kind of Lord that we serve. You may have friends that when the going gets tough, they decide to stop talking to you. It's not the Lord. Listen, you hear silence when you pray. It's not because he doesn't listen. It may be because you're out of fellowship. He doesn't treat us like that. He's not a fair-weather friend. He's not somebody that's here today and gone tomorrow. He is dedicated. And so the hired hand may feed and guide and protect, but when it comes to my self-interest or the interest of the flock, well, i got to come first. The hired hand, because he is a hired hand, means he's getting paid. He's more interested in his finances than most ultimately in the flock. Now, there's a whole lot of current stuff that we could do. There's a, there's a new um, website out about preachers, uh, shoes preachers wear. Anybody heard of this this week? Okay, 
So there's, there's a preacher in South Carolina down in Greenville. Some, some pastor in D.C. is calling out some pastor in Greenville because all of his Instagram photos, he got $5,000 sneakers on. And he just bought his wife a Lamborghini SUV. And so this preacher's going, hey, man, it's Easter, you know, and I know that Lord, the Lord has blessed you, but you need to le- learn to live a little more simply because this guy's really proud of all the money that he's making. And then it just asks the question, is this preacher in Greenville more concerned in his own finances than he is in the flock that God has entrusted to him? Just saying. Jesus demonstrates a second way that his shepherding is superior, and that's uh, by his knowledge of the sheep. Verses 14 and 15. God's word says this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And again, I lay down my life for the sheep. Far from being a stranger, Jesus, as the good shepherd, knows his sheep. Stranger doesn't know the sheep. Sheep don't know him. They're in danger. Best analogy that I can think of for this is, um, for some of you, this is going to require you to think back a ways, okay? I'm going to ask you to think about your school days, okay? Now, for some of you, you're in it, okay? So, Alec, Michael, you, y'all, y'all, y'all got this. Colin, you got this. Um, Ed, Scott, you may have to think back a couple decades for this, okay? So, uh, just play along. Do you remember having, in school, a substitute teacher? Oh, you're laughing already. Because, you know, see, my, God had given me uh, this ordained role to help me figure out if this precious young lady or young man, if this was really truly their calling. And um, if, I could, if I could discourage them, then this probably wasn't what they needed to do. And it was great because you sit there and you go, the teacher who knows their students can go, all right, Jeff, I know you're asking for a bathroom pass, but I know what you're about to do. You're about to wander the hallway for 45 minutes, flirting with every fine young thing that comes along. Teacher knows that, you know, where, you know, if, if, if Josh never asks anything, who's, all right, here's your bathroom pass. The teacher knows. The substitute, God love her. She may have a great degree and she may have a life full of promise, but she don't know a thing about the students and they will run circles around her taking advantage of her. Jesus is saying, I know my sheep. So when you have those moments in life where you feel like nobody else knows, when you feel like everybody in your life is a substitute teacher, you know, the, their intimacy with you, their knowledge of you is just distant. Hey, I appreciate the efforts, substitute teacher. I know you're trying to keep the ball moving forward, but it's just not working out. Those, those times when you feel unknown, I can't promise you that your best human friend is always going to know or understand what you're going through. But Jesus says he knows his sheep. He knows every hardship that you're going through. He knows every unfulfilled desire that you have in your life. He knows your secret ambitions, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows those um, heartaches that you can't mention in Sunday school when people ask, hey, what do you need us to pray for? That's good. That's good. You know, the passage that we had read this morning, the Spirit intercedes for us with wordless groans. Sometimes we don't even know how to pray. The Lord knows how to pray for us. It's humbling, isn't it, to think that God knows you? I remember in middle school. Middle school is such a terrible time. You remember your first, your first girlfriend, first boyfriend, 
you know, you write the note, you slide it down, and I don't know why you gave it to the person sitting next to you, because they're going to open, it's not for them, it says, you know, to whoever, but they're going to read it and like, oh, yeah, he likes so-and-so, and you put the, do you like me, yes or no, you know, I don't even know why you put both options on, because you only want one answer, you know, yes, or, you know, do you want me to publicly embarrass you, you know, until you say yes, you know, <clears throat> you wonder sometimes in, in that kind of silly kind of environment, if she really knew me, would she like me? You ever ask that question? You ever wonder, hey, you know, is this the right person? Do I really know them? Is there going to be something about them I'm going to find out that makes me regret dating them, getting engaged to them, marrying them? You know, do I really know them? And, and, and on the other side, are you okay in yourself enough to reveal yourself to someone's warts and all? That's a pretty intimate environment. And, and what is so humbling about this is I go, oh, if I can be honest, if Jesus really knew me, he wouldn't want me. I'm a pretty sorry excuse. You are too. I mean, the Bible says there's, there's a baseline for all of us, regardless of what nationality you are, the color of your skin, what language you speak, whether you're from here, who, who your lineage is. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When it comes to measuring up to God's standards, we don't. Sometimes that is so present, not only in my mind, but in reality, that I just go, oh, God, why am I not further along the road of being able to fight sin in my own life? There is no way you could love me. That's not what the Bible says. He knows us, and he still chooses to pursue us. His knowledge is of the most intimate variety, and yet he, he loves us in spite of what he knows about us, and he proves and demonstrates his love for us by laying down his life for the sheep, being crucified for our sins. Verse 16, there's a mind-blowing thing, okay? And I don't know, I don't know if you're into like mind-blowing things on Sunday, you know, if you want to be entertained more than educated, Verse 16 is just one of those things. It is exquisite. It is beautiful. If you want to ask me to explain it, um, I will do my best, but I, I don't have language adequate to express what Jesus says in verse 16 about his knowledge. All, all I can say is, this is pretty incredible. Jesus' knowledge is so incredible that it's not just depth of intimacy about what he knows about you. Jesus is about to know something that's going to happen in the future that nobody can know. Look at verse 16. He says, And I have other sheep that are now this fold. This fold is the Jewish nation. So he's saying, I have, I have other sheep. I have a bigger fold called the world. And I have sheep from every tribe and tongue and nation. I have other sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And they will be one flock. They will have one shepherd. Jesus doesn't only know. Who is his now? Right now, he's got this little Jewish Christian flock. And he says, I have, quick English lesson, present tense, I have sheep. They're not even believers yet. He's calling them sheep. They're goats, separated over here and accursed. He's calling them sheep right now, who he needs to, future tense, go and gather, and they will hear, and they will respond, and they will be gathered. Listen, the God that you serve is so incredible, like you don't know what's going to happen with your retirement tomorrow, your stock portfolio, whatever it is. Crash and burn. 
Jesus knows people as complex as they are, and he can claim them now, people that he's not yet even gathered. That's incredible. That's God. And how does that work? I don't know. It's a, that's above my pay grade to be able to explain it. Why don't you ask him? Because you're a creature and he's not. He's not bound by the things that we're bound by. And he can, he can know this. You know who that is? Unless you happen to be of Jewish heritage, that's you. You are part of this sheep from another fold that didn't live in Palestine in the first century. These are the people that he has gathered. He is demonstrating that he's not just a God who's committed only to Israel. He is a God that is committed to the Great Commission. And he is referring to a people that he will infallibly and most certainly redeem from every tribe and tongue and nation. That is our great shepherd's knowledge. He knows you. He knows his sheep. And he even knows the sheep that will be his one day. And maybe you get to be part of helping come into the fold. One of the things that's just so glorious to think about is we probably gave out 1,500 granola bars and invites to church in Boston. And that Joseph or Alec or Sam Crouch or Rachel Osborne may have given out a granola bar, as simple as that is, that led to someone coming to church six months down the road and they can't tell who did it. All they know is they got this business card for a church and they end up coming into the fold because someone was faithful to invite them to a church. It's incredible how it works. What incredible knowledge. Third and finally, Jesus demonstrates the superiority of his shepherding by his voluntary offering of himself. No coercion. Jesus volunteered. He raised his hand. He said, uh, who will go for us? I will go. I will do this. uh, Yeah, I like the plan. It's the implementation that kind of hurts. Got to die. Look at verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Now, to be really clear, Jesus never was required to earn his father's love. That is not what this is saying. Jesus was not coerced into offering himself as a trinity. God had set out a people to redeem. And while the father had initiated and planned it, the son was, was willingly, as part of the team, willing to be a part of the solution that, that, that actually accomplished redemption for people, and then the Holy Spirit applies it throughout the history of the church. God the Father ordained it and planned it. The Son implemented it. Uh, the Spirit spreads it abroad. There's no division within the people, the persons of the Trinity, and, and, and the Father loves Jesus because Jesus demonstrates His commitment to God's plan because Jesus is God by voluntarily, freely, willingly participating. And here's what He teaches. Jesus says, there ain't nobody strong enough to take my life from me. Listen, this is a very important point, friends, because I'm fearful that we have this really syrupy, sentimentality kind of approach to the crucifixion. Like, oh my goodness, 
God must have been on vacation when that happened. What an accident. What a tragedy. No, 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 no. No. Jesus is saying, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to pick it up. No one has taken it away from me. So enemies, don't gloat. It's a hollow victory. Let's see how happy you are in three days. Because I have the authority to lay it down. So disciples, don't be overcome with discouragement. Though what you are dealing with now is terrible. Because I have the authority to resurrect my own life. He makes a purpose statement. He says he lays his life down so that he can take it back up again. Now, there's something to be said about authority that you never have to use. As a parent, you have authority and you hope that your kids will obey without you having, just upon the threat of you using your authority. Sometimes it happens. We go, yay. Sometimes you have, it's not just theoretical authority, it's actual authority. Jesus would never have been able to exercise his actual authority in taking back up his life if he never laid it down in the first place. He says, I lay it down so that you can see me pick it back up. Listen, every single one of you, balcony up there, hey, Kelly, I see you up there. Balcony over here, Ryan, Donovan, good to have you back. Everybody here on the floor. Every single one of you have the ability to lay your life down, right? You could do it, you know? Somebody's crossing the street and they're not going fast enough this afternoon. You push them out of the way. You get hit by the bus that comes by. We have a bus in Rock Hill now. Uh, you get hit by the bus, um, you've laid your life down. Who here has the authority to pick it back up? Not a one. Not a one. So Jesus did not merely assent to being killed like an indirect suicide. No, 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 that's not it. Luke 9.51 says that um, Jesus is out there preaching in Galilee, and he takes his disciples and says, we have to go to Jerusalem. And they're like, Jerusalem? They don't like you in Jerusalem. And uh, Luke 9.51 says Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Part of the plan. Part of the plan. They hate you. Don't care. I'm going to do the right thing. That's why I came, to offer my life as a sacrifice for sin. And you go, this whole thing, like, I know it says Jesus rose, but didn't, didn't the Father resurrect him? Didn't the Holy Spirit resurrect him? Yes, they all did, because they're all God. But, but when we say Jesus rose, we're saying he had implicit power to do it. One Bible verse, I'll just encourage you, write down in your margin, Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Matthew 27, 50. It says Jesus utters his last cry, Matthew 27, 50, and then he yielded up his spirit. He gave it. He exercised the authority that he had here. No one took it from him. He gave it as an offering to his father. Only he has the authority to bring it back again. Why in the world would a shepherd die for his sheep? We have to go to the book of Romans to find that explanation because it doesn't say it clearly here. But Jesus died so that he could save his sheep. Romans 5, 8 says this, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. 
Friends, that's the gospel. You're not as good as you think you are. Ask for God to remove the blinders from your eyes to be able to see how you in your own way, we're like Baskin Robbins. We got 31 flavors, probably more than that, of ways that we rebel against God. To, to come to a point where we can acknowledge that and to see that the only solution for our sin was the sacrifice of Christ. See, the message is easy. It's, it's the receiving it that is hard. Now, verses 19 through 21 kind of bear that out. And we're not going to read it. I'm going to tell you. When Jesus spoke these words, the Jews didn't like it. And it says that there arose a division among the Jews because of his words. Well, why were they so fired up? Well, number one, by saying he's the good shepherd, Jesus is kind of implying all the other religious leaders are not. They're fleecing the flock. They're not good shepherds. They're getting stuff out of the sheep, not giving up stuff for the sheep. So there's that. But there was a controversy going back to John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples were walking along. They find a man who's been blind since birth. And the disciples being, you know, spiritually advanced go, hey, God, you know, hey, Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents said he should be born blind. And God, Jesus said, no, no, no. It's not that kind of cause and effect. It's not like you get whammied because you broke the speed limit. Now you, you know, you're like Linus. You've got this rain cloud following you around the rest of your life. No, no, no. No, he wasn't. It's not that he was born blind because of his sinner's parents, but that the glory of God may be demonstrated. And Jesus healed him, you know, made mud, put on his eyes, told him to go to the pool and wash. And this man who had been born blind, everybody knew him because he laid out asking for donations because that's the only way he could survive. People are like, hey, is this, a, is this that guy? Because it sure looks like him, but like the whole eye thing is different. Like he can see me now. Like I would always, even though he was blind, I would walk by him and not make eye contact so I didn't have to give him anything. Now he can see me. What, what is this? So they call the man, uh, Jewish leaders call the man. They're like, all right, bro. Was that an act? No, I was born blind. Never seen you before in my life. Never seen myself. Never looked in the mirror. How is it that you got your sight back? Well, this guy, Jesus, he like made mud, spit in the ground, washing my eyes, told me to go wash in the pool. All I know is once I was blind, now I see. Not good enough. Get out. Call the parents in. I don't know. They Instagram, Facebook. This your son? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's him. Looks like him. Was he born blind? Sure. What went wrong? Why is he not still blind? We want him to be blind. We would rather him be blind and us be in control than him have sight and have to attribute anything to Jesus. I don't know. All we can say is this is our son. He can see now. And he's old enough. If you want his testimony, why don't you talk to him? So they bring, they bring the homeboy back again to get grilled. And, 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 and he's like, guys, didn't we just do this? He's like, oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. I know what it is. You want to hear my testimony again because you want to be his followers too. And at the moment that the man who was born blind admits that even in the, the smallest seed fashion that he's a follower of Christ, the Jewish religious leaders explode. We are, we're disciples and who are you to teach us? And you want to be his followers, but we follow Moses. And the Jewish religious leaders demonstrate the kind of shepherds that they are by accusing the guy of lying for a miracle that God has done in his life, and they kick him out of church, cast out of the temple. Jesus brings division. In the Bible Belt, this is hard to say, it's not always cool to follow Jesus. I think, um, and I'll pick on Alec and Joseph because they're kind of the front row here, I think they found that out in the subways of Boston 
that some people, like the granola bars were tainted when they found out that they came from a church. I think they thought we poisoned them or something like that because, you know, those religious people, they're evil. Even people refused to take granola bar because it was affiliated with the church. It's not always cool to follow Jesus. And so they start their fake news campaign. That's not new. Oh, Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan. He has a demon himself. Why would a demon cast out another demon? Like, they're not even on the same team. That doesn't seem to work. So there are people that were divided by Jesus' message, yet there were others that said, hmm, there's this kind of shepherding that accuses and kicks out and hates, and there's this kind that heals and says that it's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. I think I like this kind of shepherding better than I like this kind of shepherding. And there were people in Jesus' own day and age who found his words and his deeds compelling. And they trusted him. And some of them trusted him even to their own death because they were killed as martyrs. But they knew even in their death that they had found a shepherd who was faithful. So the question for you is, who is caring for your soul? Have you made up your mind over who you want, who you want that to be? These people over here? Or this man who describes and demonstrates himself as the good shepherd? Is he your shepherd? Do you know him? More importantly, does he know you? Let me remind you what the Bible says about the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates. John 15, 13 says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And he calls us friends, and he demonstrates that by laying his life down for us. 1 John three sixteen says that Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. We don't just appreciate Jesus' love. We appropriate Jesus' love, and we demonstrate Jesus' love. So today, if you don't know him as, as your beautiful shepherd, would you make today the day that you do? I, I invite you to a conversation. I mean, this is not something that you have in the 30 seconds that the first verse of a hymn is playing. Um, if, if we need to have a conversation about that, uh, I will stay. We have deacons that will stay as long as it takes to answer your questions and to teach you what it means to turn your life over to Christ. But if he is your good shepherd, you don't get off, you don't get off free. If it says that he laid down his life for us and so we ought to lay down our life for our friends, oh boy, how many people make that list for you? Who are you willing to sacrifice for? And let me tell you, if it's your family, you do know better than pagans because like, that's just expected. There's nothing supernatural about that. If you are a follower of Christ, are you doing uh, life with a family of faith that are people that you'd be willing to sacrifice for? It doesn't get any easier just because you, you say that you know them. Now you've got to demonstrate it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for this word uh, that you have given us from your own very lips, that you are the good shepherd. And I pray that you help us to never get over that. To, to even in our own hearts at this moment, to, without music playing, just in the silence of this prayer, to just worship you for your sacrifice, for your providence, for how you watch over us. God, we know life's never easy. But we're so grateful that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we will fear no evil because you, yourself, are with us. I pray, Lord, for 
all of my friends here today that they have that kind of intimate knowledge of you and you of them, that you can give them confidence even through the hardships through which they walk and that they can know that you will sustain them. Father, today, if there is one that doesn't have that kind of relationship with you, I pray that even now you would give them the courage to come and speak to me after the service. Everybody's their own expert, but Father, this is far too serious of a conversation for us to make assumptions on. Uh, convict us of ways in which we need to repent and trust you and help us to know that there is no better person to turn our souls over than to the Good Shepherd, in whose name we pray. Amen.